Well, let's pray, and then we can get into the sermon. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Again, this is our final Advent series, so let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for everything that this season uh, means for us. Lord, help us in this time of busyness and, and difficulty and difference. Help us to um, help us to worship. Help us to see this for what it is. Help us to recognize the coming of your Son and what joy that is for the entire world. Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, again, welcome to our very last weekend of the Advent series for this year. I think it's fair to say that our preparations in this time of celebration have uh, been a bit different. We've all experienced differences in the way that we can gather or celebrate uh, in our own homes and the things that we are doing with our own traditions. And one of our traditions here at Maranatha, as you've all experienced this last year, uh, we here have this tradition with the last four weekends of uh, Christmas, the last four weekends in December leading up to Christmas, is we use it as a way to sort of stir up and build anticipation for this celebration. It's a wonderful thing that we and other churches do. And we do this as we look into the Bible to see what it tells us or what it, it, it leads us to experience in the celebration of this time of year. We're, we use it as a way to, to see what scripture, what God's word is really leading us to do at this time of year. And today, as I've said multiple times, is the fourth weekend, is this final weekend uh, of the Advent season because Christmas is on Friday. Um, it is the end of this uh, wonderful celebration. So what we're going to be preaching through, again, is this final part of this year's Advent series. Um, and we began this series by looking at God's promises. We began looking at how God promises uh, this wonderful truth to his people. And God promised that he would send a son whom he would make into a great nation. He promised to Abram that he would send a son, uh, an offspring, that he would make into a great nation. And within that promise, we learned that there are three main offices that go along with God's promised redemptive plan of salvation. Last week, Kyle made this great uh, articulated point in regards to the differences between the two offices that we've already discussed, he, uh, prophet and priest. He said that a prophet is like a firework. It sort of uh, is flashy and loud because it's meant to draw your attention to it, but then it's sort of gone. And then the role of priest, which he talked about last week, uh, we might say is more like a campfire. It's warm and comfortable, even necessary. But that role could just as easily sort of fade into the background because of how constant and common it was to the people. So we have the prophet who's, who's, who's flashy and loud and is drawing attention to himself, and we have the priest who is constant and common and serving and, and comfortable. And I'm reminding you of these descriptions because the office of Christ that we're going to talk about today has its own unique challenge. Prior to this Advent series, some of us may have already known of these three offices that we're preaching through, but for the rest of us, this may be the first time that we've ever really, uh, we've really experienced these uh, explanations, which is why, again, Kyle's clever depiction help us so much, because we need sometimes help understanding these Old Testament officers, because they're not really common to us, but... When we begin to talk about the third office, that is Christ as king, each of us already have sort of this vision or this idea of what a king might look like 
or act like. We have this already sort of placed in our mind, whether it's due to television or books or uh, the commonality that we, we look to when we think of uh, some sort of king. Already, someone already has these ideas in their head. So today, I, I'm going to preach about, or I'm going to try to preach about who Christ actually is in his kingship. I'm going to try to help us reframe maybe what you're thinking about a king by showing you who Christ actually is in his kingship. Together, these three offices articulate the type of work that, is, uh, that the promised Christ would embody in his advent, in the time of season that we're celebrating, in his arrival here on earth. And as the final prophet, this is the first office, as the final prophet, the Christ would reveal the truth and the true nature of God for his people. And then as the final priest, the Christ would mediate the relationship between that just and righteous God of all creation and his people who have ultimately sinned against him. And today, going forward, we're going to hear how Jesus the Christ is that ultimate king. How he is prophet, priest, and the ultimate king as he is the one who has all authority and perfectly rules over all creation, which does include us. He rules over all creation, which does include us, all of humanity, those who believe and don't believe. So our main reading is what we're going to be, the main text that we're going to be in is 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. So if you want to open your Bibles there, 2 Samuel 7, um, and if you're using one of the, uh, the Bibles in front of you, that's page 242. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how God was promising what was to come by revealing to his people what he was doing, right? This is what we've tried to show with these Old Testament officers and Old Testament prophecies. God was revealing to his people what he was going to do by explaining what he is doing. And he ordained for there to be these prophet, priests, and kings as a way to point the people forward to what will be. This is the whole entire summary of the series. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to work to explain, um, I'm going to work to explain this further, but this is exactly what God is doing again uh, through King David in our passage today. So if you would stand with me in reverence for God's word, let's stand and listen to what God has to say through the prophet Nathan to King David and how he will one day establish this forever king and forever Kingdom, Second Samuel seven eight through seventeen. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: I I took you from the pastures and following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will t- I will make you a great nation, like the name of the great ones of the earth." And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin to have a seat. Um, now, I think it would be helpful for us as we, as we look to this prophecy, as we look into this Old Testament, I think that it would be helpful for us to have some context into actually what's happening around the time in this moment of our passage today. You see, King David, in, in what's been going on, King David has just recently brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He went and got it. He, he, he's now king and he, he's sort of been set up and, and things have been established and he went and got the covenant and brought it back to Jerusalem. Now the ark, if you don't know what that is, is really this important symbol of faith which represents that the presence of God was among his people. Right, so uh, this was actually uh, given to Moses. There were specific instructions given to Moses on how to construct this uh, this. Uh, piece of uh, architecture that they carried around with them uh, is sort of this relic where it symbolized their faith as well as the presence of God. And it was so special, and in these uh, special instructions given to Moses, that he was told exactly how they were to construct it as well as how they were meant to handle it. And in this moment, as King David is feeling secured and he, he begins to feel guilty, he begins to feel guilty that he is living in this, this great palace, this wonderful home made of cedar. This idea of cedar is meant to depict or symbolize wealth and security and, and, and comfort. While this ark that God exists uh, in or his presence is uh, laid upon is essentially outside. It's outside actually dwelling in this temporary tent. Uh, so David is feeling guilty. So David sends to, says to his friend Nathan, who is also a given prophet of God, his name is Nathan, he says to him, hey, you know, let's, let's move that ark inside. All right, let's, let's, let's bring it inside and let's make a really nice home, a really nice place uh, for this presence of God. And Nathan uh, agrees. He even says, as a prophet of God, he says this, he says, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The only problem is, God didn't tell him that, right? Nathan is a prophet, and God didn't say that. He didn't get that word from God. So that night, God went to Nathan, and in a dream, he tells him this. He tells Nathan to go and tell the king that he shouldn't do this. Don't do this. Do not build me a house, and the reason for this was because God didn't tell him to do that, right? We were instructed to be obedient. God never told Nathan to tell David to do this thing. Now, the reason why God, up until this point, uh, didn't have his people place the ark in one location was to protect them from the idea that God was fixed to a place. Like, there's a purpose for everything that God does. So up until this point, God purposefully didn't want to dwell in one particular place because he wanted to protect his people from the, the idea or the belief that God was fixed to one specific location. God was leading them to understand that he doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't live in some sort of shrine, but he lives amongst his people wherever they are. 
Right? This is the, the, the revelation that he wants us to, to process and understand with the tabernacle. And through David's desire to honor the Lord by building him a house to dwell in, God turns David's idea around uh, on him and promises instead to build David a house. He says, don't do this for me. Don't build this place, but instead I will build you a house. And this is really where the promise of Christ's kingship comes to life for us. This is really where it's going to come together uh, and take shape for us because God wasn't promising a building. He wasn't promising David that he would build a a sort of a, a better house than David already had. No, what he was saying by saying, I will build you a house is God was saying, I will build you a dynasty. I will build you a future people. I will build you a future kingdom, a dynasty. He was promising David as well as all who would believe and all who would yield themselves unto the Lord that they would be his people and that the promised son that he speaks of would be their king. This is what he's saying to them. He says, I will build you a kingdom. I will build you this dynasty, this house. And if you believe, if you yield yourself unto me, you will be a part of this family. You will get to have this promised son as your king. Look at verse 12 and 16 again with me. Now, again, this prophecy um, is talking about Solomon, who, uh, who is David's son, who will be David's son, who would, in fact, be king over Israel, who would, in fact, go on to be used to write three books of the Bible. He wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. But this promised prophecy, just like the other ones we've talked about in this series, just like the other officers that we've discussed, finds their ultimate fulfillment in the one to come, right? So we're understanding this theme. We're talking about Old Testament shadows that are pointing us forward to what they're actually revealing. So look at verse 12. Again, this is about Solomon, but it's fulfilled in Christ. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." In these verses, uh, in these, uh, what is it, five verses or so, there are seven promises made to King David about this promised king. There are seven promises, and, and this is what they are. Number one, God would establish his forever kingdom with one of David's direct descendants. This, this kingdom that he's promising, God says to David, this person will come directly from your lineage. Number two, this future king would build a house, a people, right, for God's name, which means for his glory. This would be for God's glory, this, this future kingdom. Number three, the reign of his kingdom will endure forever. He will rule from the throne for eternity, It will will never end. Number four, this king will be seen as a son of of God the Father. This king that will come, this forever king, will be seen as a son of God 
the Father. Number five, God will punish. God's punishment will fall upon him. This divine judgment over sin will fall on this man. And all that would be true. Number six, God will not ever remove his steadfast love from him. He will never be removed like Saul. The other king was, was removed from God, God's favor. And the last one, number seven, this house that God would create, this kingdom, this throne through David, it will be established and it will endure forever. Nothing can come up against this, this kingdom, this throne and conquer it. Nothing. It will endure forever. The way that God promises David is by first telling him what he says to him in verse 8 and 9. God uses the past. He talks to David about the past. He, he informs David of what he's already shown him as a way to promise him a future. We, we too can, can understand this. We too can recognize what God is doing here. And we can take hold of these promises or this way that God reveals truth to us. We can believe on God's promises simply because of who he is, because his word is always true. He can't lie, but the past for us can be used as a, really as a foundation of hope for what God will do in the future. As we stand in this strange time in, in our own history, we can look back to the past so we can see how God saves, how God redeems, how God restores, how God protects and secures. We can look back to see his faithfulness as a way to give us hope as we walk forward in these uncertain times. This is the same thing for David, and it's a, a promise to us as well. God reminded King David of what he has done for him in the past which was for David's good, but ultimately for God's glory. Again, God does this for us to build our faith. And we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. God does this kind of thing for our good, to build our faith. We've talked about that in James, how we are to, to with all joy, take in these, uh, this myriad of, of experiences, this myriad of trials, and count it all joy because it's building an endurance for our faith. So what is this promised future? What is God actually promising David? What is he saying to him? Well, let's fast forward to what actually would come. Let's fast forward to what God is telling David is going to take place. You can follow along with me up on the screen, but I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 23. This is what it says. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of pregnancy, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now here is the prophecy. Here is the promised prophecy. Verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. 
This is the fulfillment. This is the future that God was promising David. This king, his name will be Jesus, and he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's what Christ means, the anointed one, the, the, the one to come to save God's people from themselves. And we've said this, and, and I believe that it's true. Our celebration of Advent each and every year is meant to point us to Christ's next and final Advent. Right? When he, when he comes again, his second coming. Jesus Christ is our final prophet because he perfectly revealed God's word and work to us. He is not only the one who, who, who proclaims God's word, but he is God's word. Jesus Christ is our final priest because he came as God in the flesh and he came like you and me and sacrificed himself on our behalf before a holy God. That is how he is our priest, our final priest. And Jesus Christ is the final and the ultimate king. He is who God is promising David will one day come and rescue his people and secure a kingdom that will endure forever. He is this king. Jesus Christ is our final and perfect king. So who is this king? Who is this king? What is he like? Well, we get a picture of what he is like in Revelation 19. When he comes, we get a picture of what this king is like in Revelation 19. There, Jesus is described as the authoritative word of God. He has all authority. He is king. His word is true. He is glorious. He's majestic. He's seen, in fact, as a warrior king. He's called the word, but he is described as faithful and true. In verses 11, uh, 11 through 16 of Revelation 19, our king is riding in to make war on this world, but it's a holy war. It's a holy war, one that makes an assault with victory on the earthly kingdom of sin and death. That is what he's accomplished. That is what he has done on our behalf. As the pace of this white horse that he is riding continues, his eyes flash with fire. His head holds many crowns. His robe is dripping with blood and the armies of heaven are following after him. There's a sword that comes out of his mouth depicting that his word is perfect and true. His authority will not be questioned. His authority will not be questioned. He will rule the nations which he created with a steady firmness like a rod of iron. He is good. This is the type of king that Christ is. This is the type of king that our Christ is. He is the king who willfully takes the charge and secures the victory of his enemies on behalf of his house. On behalf of his house, on behalf of his people. Who are his people who belong to this house of the Lord? Well, we are the ones who are none other than the ones who are clothed in the soft linen from the previous vision in Revelation 19, which talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's who the armies of God are. That is us, that is you and me who are made sons and daughters of God the Father, who belong to Christ, who are in his house, who have been given all the inheritance of the spiritual blessings that Christ has purchased on our behalf with his blood. He is this good king. He is this glorious and wonderful promise. 
This is the church. We are his bride, the ones who know that the Lord is also our husband and who willfully follow him as our king. Willfully follow him in all authority as our king. So this Advent season, look forward. Look forward. That is what this time is is meant for. It is meant for us to celebrate and look to the promises of the gospel. Look and feel secured by Jesus Christ, our king, who has already established his kingdom. He's already established his kingdom. It It is done. It is finished. And who in the Father's perfect timing will return to restore all things. Look forward to that time. But until then, while we remain here in this difficulty, in these uncertain times, until then, this is what we can be sure of. That this forever king, our forever king, Jesus is ruling, he is directing, and he is governing over all things, over all things on this earth as well as in heaven. He has authority over everything. There's nothing outside of his control as king, his sovereign reign as king, nothing. Amen. Amen. Nothing is outside of his reign. He has come to us. He has rescued us. And he is watching over all of us. He is good. He is good. How then are we to react? What might be our faithful response as we sit here and we, and we hear how good of a king Christ is? How might we react? What is a faithful response as we look around and we wait for this king? Well, I think that our response can be the same response that David had. Look at 2 Samuel seven eighteen. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. We know this. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. See, over this Advent series, all of these wonderful promises that we've heard time and time again, they are true. The Lord wants us to have ears to hear, to recognize what this is, so we can cling to what God has done in the past as we live today looking forward to tomorrow. It's a glorious gift. The hope that we have is founded in what has happened already, which leads us to look forward to what will be in just a little while. In just, excuse me, in just a little while. Jesus Christ's first advent reveals that his promised second advent will happen soon. 
if you would pray with me. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you for your grace and your promises, Lord. Thank you for what we have in your word, that we can look and we can see your great faithfulness, Lord. That we can see that your love is abundant, that you are uh, infinitely righteous, Lord. Lord, thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are good. Lord, help us to walk in honor of you, giving our lives daily over to you, leaving ourselves but following after our King. Lord, help us to follow him in word as well as in deed. Lord, we love you. Be with us this season of Christmas as we celebrate the birth of this king. We celebrate this birth of your son. It's in his name we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.